Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Somani Sengupta, is the United Nations correspondent for the New York Times. She's also the author of the new book, The End of Karma, Hope and Fury Among India's Young, which tells the story of a huge demographic challenge facing India today, where 365 million people are between the ages of 10 and 24. It is the youngest country on the planet, and through storytelling and reporting, Somani puts the experiences of India's young into the broader context of India's political, social, and economic challenges. Somani was born in Calcutta, but came to Canada and then the USA at a young age. She joined the New York Times in the mid-1990s, and she tells some powerful stories from her reporting in Africa in the early 2000s, including Liberia, Congo, and Darfur. We kick off discussing her new book and a term she coined to describe India's youth generation, the, quote, noonday children. And most of you probably get that this is a play on Solomon Rushdie's Midnight Children. As always, if you're new to the podcast, a hearty welcome. You can check out our past shows, subscribe on iTunes, or get the app at globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can also get in touch with me. And I do love hearing from you. So if there's anything on your mind, just hit me up. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is Somani Sengupta. So my father was uh, born right before independence in 1947, and he belongs to what's known as Midnight's Children. And Midnight, because India gained its independence from the British at midnight on August 15th, 1947. The famous Salman Rushdie novel, right? Famous Salman Rushdie novel. So uh, my title, my my notion is uh, is absolutely a hat tip to Salman Rushdie. But, you know, my generation would be sort of the gen, I would have come of age in the late 80s. And I would have come of age right before India started to open up its economy in 1991. And Noonday's Children is the generation that I really focus on in this book. And that's the generation that comes of age after 1991, when India kind of quietly, slowly, gradually starts opening up to the global economy, and it paves the way for all kinds of changes. And Noonday, in part because it's this generation that is so uh, red hot and demanding and impatient and uh, full of uh, ambition and, and expectation. So to me, it suggests um, what I try to suggest in, in the subtitle, which is that this generation is really full of hope, but also 
a little bit of fury or quite a bit of fury. So what happened in 1991 to signal this um, transformation? India was compelled to open uh, to the global economy. It was never a socialist economy. It was a state-led planned economy, if you will. Um, and it was, uh, it, it, this coincided with, you know, lots of changes in the world, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall happened during this, this time. And because of the first Gulf War and, you know, rising uh, oil prices, India's foreign exchange reserves really plummeted and it, it began to open up to the world. It didn't make a big grand announcement about this because this was, um, you know, quite controversial. And so it slowly began to liberalize its economy. And that is a process that is still ongoing. But this also coincided with really broad um, social changes and also political changes, because it was also in the early 90s that you uh, witnessed the rise of the Hindu Nationalist Party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, that uh, is in power today. And so it, um, it was a real transformative time for modern India. What I, I love uh, about your formulation um, by giving this generation a name um, sort of enables one to compare it to other kind of baby boom generations, specifically, you know, the, the baby boomers here in the US, which obviously, you know, were responsible for profound social transformation. Uh, but I take it you don't see this generation as as ushering that kind of sort of paradigm shift. Oh, I do see it as transformative. I think Noonday's children are perhaps the most transformative generation in India's history in, because they're really making uh, some new demands on Indian democracy. They're demanding uh, that India live up to its promise of freedom that was made at midnight, that was made in 1947. And, you know, every, every democracy has these moments when um, it, it, it uh, has, uh, if you will, identity crises. You know, it sort of has to figure out what kind of a country it wants to be. It uh, has these struggles from inside that, that, that define what kind of a democracy it wants to be. And that, that is true for our own country as well. And, you know, you, you bring up a really good parallel between the baby boom generation uh, in the United States and, and India's uh, noonday generation. The fact is, this is a really crucial demographic moment for India because it's not just that there are a lot of children in the population. There are, but more importantly, as fertility rates are going down, people are having fewer children, the share of older people in the population is not so high. What is really bulging and ballooning is this uh, working age cohort, the number of Indians between the ages of 15 and 34, just that cohort, their numbers are something like 420 million. That's a staggering number. And that number exceeds the combined population of the United States, Canada, and then some. Uh, so you're talking about a really large proportion of people in the prime of their lives. And Every single month you have now for the next few years, one million Indians who turn 18 every month and they uh, get ready to join the labor force. They uh, can register to vote. They embrace the Internet, many of them for the first time. They fall in love. They speak out. And, and as they do, they really profoundly change the 
the shape of this country. And that's what I wanted to, that's what I really wanted to capture through the stories of, you know, just seven ordinary young people. Yeah, I'd love you. So can you tell me uh, some of their stories, maybe one or two of their stories, so we can, I think, learn a little bit about how their experience um, sort of is emblematic of larger demographic shifts and social shifts that you describe? So I'll tell you the story of a young woman named uh, Varsha. And I met Varsha when she was 14 she is the daughter of um, a presswala, and, and her family has a little business in a kind of posh, prosperous suburb of Delhi. What's a presswala? They, they press other people's clothes. Um, so they have a, that a would neighborhood be intuitive, stand. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they have a neighborhood stand under the shade of a tree. It's a very rudimentary structure, and they get washed, dried clothes from the the nice villas and the nice apartments from the neighborhood, and they press the clothes and they return them in nice, tidy little bundles. And since Varsha was a little girl, she's been helping her her parents uh, in the family business. She, Because she's the eldest daughter of five, she's also been helping her mother make dinner every night. She's been helping her siblings with their homework. But Varsha is totally into school. She's really diligent about school because she wants school to be her exit ticket. She does not want to be a presswala. She does not want to be a presswala's wife. And she's really, really typical of so many um, young people who are first generation learners. You know, How did you who are meet the her? first in their families to go to school. Well, I kind of started hanging around in the in the school that uh, where she was uh, where she was a student, and I started talking to the principal there, and I started following a number of kids. And, um, you know, Varsha was really just super dynamic, super ambitious. She was a little bit of a hothead. Um, she, I just really liked her. I just liked hanging out with her. And so I spent um, several years just kind of hanging out with her and reporting her story. And, and the really incredible thing I, I thought about Varsha was that she didn't just um, not want to be uh, a presswala or a presswala's wife. She had a very specific ambition. She wanted to be a police officer. And why did she want to be a police officer? Because when she was about 16 or 17, there came that really widely publicized horrific gang rape in Delhi in at the end of 2012. And this just um, exercised the, the entire country, particularly young people, and it made everybody talk about um, violence against women um, in, in the country. And Varsha thought, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve my country. I'm going to become a police officer and help keep women and girls like me safe. It also so happened that there were lots of jobs that were uh, becoming available for women police officers around that time with the growing recognition that you just needed to have more women in cop shops. And so this was Varsha's dream, but... Varsha had a father who had some other ideas and Varsha's father was not, you know, is not a a bad guy. He's a really loving father. He totally is her champion, but the idea of her becoming a police officer was not something that he could quite stomach, you know? And um, so Varsha's story is very typical of so many young women. It's a story of a young woman who is growing her wings and the story of a father who really has to decide how far he's going to let her go. I mean, when you're reporting a story like that, I mean, it's clear just like how you are describing uh, Varsha that you really like her um, and you want her to succeed. I sort of just kind of get that sense from from hearing how you describe her. Like, are you ever tempted to intervene uh, and just like help her? 
I no, we yes and no. I mean, I do write in the book that at one point I was um, tempted to print out a copy of the police service examination and the, the the application form and just give it to her quietly. And I decided against it because you know it's it's her life, it's her father. She's got to negotiate, and she's been really great at negotiating. I mean, she just keeps nudging him and pushing him and nudging him and pushing him, and it you know he's really also been changed because he's her father. So yeah, I mean, I do root for her success. Um, but she's got to find her own path. Do you know what she's up to now? She actually, I don't want to give away the story too much. She's only 19 now. And um, she's managed to persuade her father, who is a bit reluctant, but she's managed to persuade her father to let her go to college. And so she's, you know, riding the metro every day by herself. And, um, going to college. Excellent. Well, so, uh, so that, I mean, that, that seems like a, a really, um, it, you know, I, I let you have this line where you say something like, you know, you pick seven stories out of like a billion to, to highlight. Um, mm-hmm. um, does, does her experience, is her experience in any sort of profound way, um, indicative of, of larger trends, particularly among young women, like more opportunities being available to, to young Indian women that were in previous generations? Absolutely. She is typical in in at least two respects. She is full of ambition, as many young women and men are. She is determined to get an education, as many young women and men are. Um, And she's really, um, she was born with one destiny, you know? I mean, she was born to a woman who got married very early in life, um, who had five children, who doesn't really know anything beyond the press stand and her family and her home. And Varsha is really trying to make herself a new destiny. She's trying to write her own destiny. And there's a lot of negotiating, that um, a lot of negotiation that, that goes on in that. So yes, she is absolutely um, typical of so many young women um, in, her, in her generation, but also by the same token, like as a journalist, I'm very, very wary of just fitting individuals into a box, you know, like, so-and-so typifies, uh, you know, 600 million people. Um, it, that, it's impossible to do that, but it's also not fair to their individual story. So I'm a little reluctant to have um, any of the people that I write about just be characters or just be straw men or straw women for an idea. They are, they are rich, individual, unpredictable, complicated lives. And I try, I don't know if I succeed, I try to tell their stories in that way. And I try to tell their stories with, um, with humility. You know, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. I could have been born any of them. I could have been born as Varsha's mother. And it's only an accident of faith, right? An accident of birth that, that I am who I am. Well, I would love to actually explore that deeper. Like, uh, who are you and, and where you came from? So, so you you are, were born, I suppose, you know, between the midnight generation and the noonday generation. I don't know if it makes you like the six a.m. generation. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so so, but you were born in Calcutta, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Calcutta, and um, I uh, was there until just after my eighth birthday. And, what did your parents and- do? My father worked for a state government agency. He was uh, a inspector of factories. So he would go to um, to factories to make sure that they met certain 
labor standards. Uh, and he describes going to these like leather tanneries and stuff. I don't really write about this in the book, but uh, my father tells great stories about going to these old leather tanneries and even newspaper plants where conditions were not safe for workers. And he would meet like people who had their fingers chopped off, you know, on the factory floor and stuff. Um, but he just uh, thought that there was something beyond um, his city. You know, he was um, he was ambitious. He was tired of hustling for just little things. Um, like he describes going from shop to shop looking for this certain brand of malted milk powder called Horlicks, which was supposed to make me stronger. I was a pretty, you know, sort of sickly, frail child. And um, he just wanted to explore the world. And so did my mother. My mother was a, a math teacher in a, in a school. And so they um, decided uh, to pack up and go to a tiny little village in Midwestern Canada in 1975. So we came from this, you know, bustling uh, city of empire, Calcutta, which, you know, used to be the, the first um, British imperial capital in, in India. And uh, then we went to this tiny little village in Canada and we went there like many immigrants, you know, we followed my father's older brother. He was already there. He was working in a textile factory in that small village in Canada. And so we kind of moved in um, at first with him. What's the uh, name of the, what was the name of the village? It's called Selkirk, Manitoba. In Manitoba. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've never, yeah. I, am, I am of Canadian descent and I have never heard of Selkirk and I've never actually. It's not far from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so then we moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba and on a long bustling weekends, metropolis of Winnipeg, a bustling Manitoba. metropolis. Yes. And so for, for long weekends, for a, for a flavor of a bustling metropolis, we would drive down to Minneapolis. Um, that was our, that was our bustling metropolis, the nearest one. And so did your dad we, get a job at that, at that textile plant? He did. He worked there for a little while. He, you know, he's a, he was an immigrant. He patched together a, a lot of jobs. He was an engineer by training. And so then uh, we, after three years in Canada, we drove down to Southern California. My parents couldn't really bear the cold for much longer. It, it, I think it snowed like, I don't know, four or five months of the year, at least in, in Midwestern Canada. So we, uh, we came to where the palm trees were. We came to, you know, the ultimate, um, yeah, the ultimate dream city in, uh, in America. And we settled in one of the um, suburbs of uh, Los Angeles. And um, my father, uh, you know, eventually worked as an engineer. Um, and I went to school. I went to public schools in Southern California. I went to college in, in Berkeley. And uh, then sort of accidentally found my way into a newsroom, first in the Los Angeles Times. And I was a fish in water. Um, how did well, how did you end up at, at the LA Times? A, uh, a remarkable uh, writer named Hector Tobar, who I was friends with, who um, was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times at the, t the at the time. He then went on to become a foreign correspondent with the Los Angeles Times and wrote a great book um, about the Chilean miners, you know, who were stuck. Uh, and he sort of suggested, hey, would you like to apply for a training program at the Los Angeles Times? And at the, at the time, they were trying to diversify newsrooms across the country. And uh, I had a few clips from my college newspaper. And uh, I guess I, you know, persuaded the... Um, uh, persuaded the editors that I should be given a chance. And, and I was, and I learned on the job. I, I did not have the good fortune of going to journalism school. Um, 
And I was taught by great journalists, uh, first at the LA Times, then at Newsday. And then I came at the very end of 1995, I came to the New York Times. Were you doing foreign correspond? Were, were you doing as a foreign correspondent, or were you doing like like kind of starting with like you know? Oh man, I covered. Uh, yeah, I covered um, uh, Brooklyn like uh, local councils. I covered. Do you remember your first byline in the New York Times? Do you remember what the first story was? I remember my first front page story. Ooh, what was that? And that the, my first front page story was about children who were observing Ramadan. Um, and fasting in the New York City public schools. And that was, you know, whatever, the mid-90s. And it was, you know, still a fairly new thing. Um, It was long before there were so many um, Muslim-American kids in the New York City public schools. So, yeah, that was... um, that was my first front page story, but I, I, I did it, all kinds of uh, assignments at the New York Times. So, uh, like I said, I covered schools, I covered social services, I covered the cop shop, I covered a session uh, of Albany, the the state legislature in Albany. Did a little bit of politics. I went to Florida during the Bush Gore uh, elections, if you remember that. Um, and yeah, then I, after... I still have like some PTSD from that. It's uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So when I hear about, um, you know, flawed voting machines in Florida, it sort of brings back, um, yeah, memories of of reporting that story for 36 straight days. Um, And then when, after September 11th, I um, raised my hand and um, wanted to go overseas and was first doing, you know, well, why, 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 why did you want to go over? It sounds like you had kind of built a pretty solid career covering, you know, politics and, and domestic issues. What made you want to go overseas? Uh, two things. I mean, at the New York times, that was an opportunity um, and an opportunity that was opening up more uh, after September 11th. Um, there was a sense that we needed to, cover the world even more than, than we were. Uh, and also I felt like it was important for, um, for me to have a shot at it. Um, and yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Maybe you'd want to. No, no, no. That's, that's, that that's a good answer. Yeah. It's an honest so, answer. Yeah, I didn't. And so then I, um, I loved being overseas when I was sent out for, you know, short, short stints. Um, I also have to say, yeah. And then I, um, in early 2000 and Oh God, what very early 2003, I guess it was like January 1st. Um, I went for my first posting as the bureau chief for West Africa. And at the time the bureau was in Abidjan in Ivory coast and Ivory coast was in the middle of a civil war. And so I remember landing, uh, and curfew was, maybe 6.30 or 7 o'clock, and there were some gun battles right around the house, which was our bureau and our residence. Um, and so I I was there for several months, but then I moved the West Africa Bureau to Dakar, to Senegal, which uh, is a beautiful city and at the time uh, was um, a very stable um, place. And so I had to cover something like 20 countries, and many of them were embroiled in conflict. So I covered not only the war in the Ivory Coast, but also in Liberia. Mm-hmm. I covered the fall of Charles Taylor. Uh, I may have been the last one to interview him before he got on a plane and 
went to Nigeria, went into exile. Uh, I what was that the- interview? I mean, here let, let, let's unpack these stories a little bit. This, this, sure. this sounds fascinating to me. Um, so, in in Abidjan, was there a moment where you realized that you just can't work here? Uh, was there a specific moment where you said we have to, you know, go to go to you know the safe harbor and the beaches of Dakar and and no longer stay in Abidjan? You know, I had no, I, I wasn't like, oh, hey, I really want to be a war reporter. Um, you know, I, that wasn't really what I was signing up for. So I guess I didn't quite know what I was signing up for. And it was kind of unpleasant to go around covering conflicts and then having to come home and not even being able to, you know, go out and like drink with your friends till 10 at night. You know, it was like as shallow as that. I just thought, I think we need a more peaceful um, stable place where, uh, you know, where it's actually nice to come home and hang out with my friends and do laundry and then pack a bag and go somewhere again, you know, um, and cover another conflict. But it wasn't, this wasn't what I had always dreamt of doing. And I still don't really get my thrills from covering war. I've done some of it. I've done plenty of it, but I think, um, the, the storytelling in a conflict setting for me is most interesting when you tell stories of ordinary people who are caught up in war, you know, who are caught up in the crosshairs of, of history. And so do you remember any specific stories of those individuals, say from Liberia uh, that you reported on that you told? I remember very distinctly um, a story about crossing the bridge in Monrovia, which was the front line between government soldiers on one side and uh, the rebel, they were called lured soldiers on the other side. And it took some negotiating. You know, I called up the commanders on both sides of the bridge and I said, hey, look, you know, I'm a journalist. I'd like to come out with some photographers. Maybe a couple of colleagues will will join. Um, And we'd like to go to the other side. We were on the government side of the bridge. And so I and I said, you guys have been firing at each other. It's all fine and good, but just kind of hold your fire until we cross. And you'll know that we are crossing because we will wear white t-shirts. We will wave white t-shirts. We will, um, you know, we'll have press signs all over us. So can you please make a deal that you'll just stop firing across the bridge when a couple of journalists are coming across. Um, and they said, yes, I mean, it took some doing and, um, you know, uh, ultimately I think, I don't remember how many of us there were, maybe eight, nine. Um, we ended up crossing. Um, we were, we crossed safely and we got to the other side how nerve-wracking and then they was that, Im- though, immediately cross. started firing. Uh. Like as soon as we got to the other side, they immediately started firing. It was like, really, really, do you really have to do this? Um, and then, but the point of going to the other side was to see how people were living on the other side. And I, I do remember going to a makeshift hospital immediately and, um, and seeing what was happening there because the city was divided. There was, uh, there was medical care uh, and doctors on the government side, but no food because, and no gas be, because the port was held by the rebels. The port was on the rebel side. So there was plenty of food, but they were, I think they had like no medical facilities. They were very low on medicines. And so I immediately went to um, a hospital. I remember doing a a story about the hospital um, there. 
how nervous were you crossing that bridge? I mean, knowing that soldiers' guns were probably trained on you and not really having any guarantee of whether or not they'd pull the trigger. Well, I'd been talking to, you know, to these commanders, like, you know, for a while. And I just, I was on the phone. It was like when we were on sat phones, because this was before everybody had cell phones. Um, so it was, yeah, it was nerve wracking. It was probably foolish. Um, but, you know, yeah, we, we did. And it wasn't just like, oh, the thrill of doing this. That wasn't the point. The point was to go and write stories about what life was like on the other side. Cause all we, we could do until that point was just talk to people on the phone or we occasionally get some people on the phone and we'd sort of write, you know, based on what they were telling us on the phone. Um, so that was Liberia. And there was, um, the other well, story that I, yeah. On, on Liberia, have you been back there recently at all? No, sadly I, I have not. Um, yeah, you know, I, I thought there, about going yeah. back last year and I, and yeah. I, it's crazy. I mean, I was there in like 2008 and then again in 2012 and mm -hmm. just, I mean, the amount of like reconstruction and rehabilitation just but from 2008, like five years after the civil war to 2012, mm -hmm. like nine years after the civil war is, was astounding to me. Mm -hmm. It was just so much more built up in that small amount of time. I haven't been back there since, uh, but I have to imagine, I mean, the, the, well, I have to imagine actually Ebola probably slowed things down a bit, but um, it was, it was impressive the way that um, that country just was, was growing so rapidly over those four years. It's a remarkable country for how much it has survived and for the, um, the spirit and the good humor um, and the kindness of, of people there. Um, you know, and I, I use the term resilient very sparingly because I don't think people should have to be resilient when, you know, warlords are taking advantage of them. Um, so I won't use that term. Uh, but, you know, I, I really did fall in love with, with, um, with Liberia. And so and how did like you go back? How did you get to meet Charles Taylor? What was that interview? How did that interview get set up? Oh, I think I'd been trying, trying, trying for a long time. And, uh, you know, he, he finally agreed. Uh, and he was an extremely confident warlord. He was, he had been in the bush as a rebel leader for a long time, as you know. Um, and, you know, by this time, he was responsible for the deaths of um, tens of thousands of people, both in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Uh, and he spoke, I remember he spoke very confidently about his, um, his staying power. Uh, and I don't remember how long after that he, he got on a plane. I remember watching him walk across the tarmac and get on that plane and go to Nigeria. And I have to say that when he was convicted, um, of war crimes, that was a remarkable, for me, it was just a remarkable moment because I still keep um, it at my desk at home. I still keep that portrait of Ch Charles Taylor, like me interviewing Charles Taylor, because it just, it reminds me um, how important it is to, you know, hold um, men in power accountable. And in this instance, in this rare instance, this man who had caused enormous heartache and enormous damage across a swath of West Africa was ultimately held accountable. I, I, it's funny. I have a Milosevic wanted poster in my office. Right. Uh, See, those, you know what I mean? For similar reasons. I, mm -hmm. I once interned uh, before I, I got into the journalism thing at the uh, ICTY, the War Crimes Tribunal for uh, the former Yugoslavia. 
Um, so I, I, I get that. I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's sort of nice to have those like monuments to justice. Um, and you want, you want a, a poke award, right? For, for your reporting from West Africa. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a really remarkable year because there was not only, um, the, the Liberian civil war, but it was also, uh, a moment. There have been many when, um, the democratic Republic of Congo was, uh, also in the throes of a really, uh, horrific war where I remember once writing a story out of a town called Bunya. And I said, the weapons of mass destruction here are machetes, uh, because that's what, um, rival militias were using to chop up um, their their enemies and leaving their bodies you know scattered on the on the streets um, and um, yeah so it was both it was Liberia it was DRC and then the the conflict in Darfur was just beginning at that time and so uh, as early as um, the first part of 2004 it was quite that was quite early not many people had been into Darfur at that time um, but I, I started going in and out of Darfur in in early 2004 I think my first trip may have been in February of 2004 um, and you know now that's a story where um, the suffering uh, just continues. 12 years later. How did you make it into Darfur in February, 2004? So this was, um, I'm, 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 uh, so on it's at some point in February, 2004, uh, the Washington post ran an op-ed saying that there's genocide, genocide in Darfur, a, a, an academic named Eric Reeves, who'd been following the situation mm-hmm. in Sudan, wrote that op-ed. That was the first kind of time in a major publication that Darfur and genocide were kind of put together in the same way, but you're actually there on the ground very shortly after. And I have to imagine that not too far from when you were there, Christoph was probably there too, because he was doing a lot of. Yeah. He went, I think maybe a month or two after that first trip. So how did you, how did you make it there? How did you, like, how did you access it? Yeah. I mean, a couple of times I had a visa from Khartoum and a few times I didn't. Uh, So there was a vast desert that connects uh, Chad and um, the Darfur region of Sudan. And uh, so me and a couple of photographers um, walked across the desert and found some uh, guides who could, who could help us. And uh, the, uh, the rebel forces who were, who were fighting um, in, in Darfur at the time um, uh, showed us, you know, what um, showed us the atrocities that they wanted to show the world. And, um, we we spent you know a, I think about a week or ten days with them on on one trip, um, but I also did, went back and I and I spent time with uh, the government, the pro government militia. I went to spend time with uh, with the Janjaweed to see what was happening from from their point of view. And this was before the UN mission mobilized. This was when um, finally I think in the fall of two thousand and four, um, the African Union uh, first went there. Um, so, you know, I was, I was, I wanted to document the story from, from different regions of Darfur and from, from different vantage points, but always, again, like for me, the story is never what the, you know, the, the, the warriors are, are necessarily saying, but what, um, ordinary people, particularly, um, you know, just ordinary men and women, what their lives, uh, how their lives are appended. Did and you? I remember one time, like one trip that we made, when we were just sitting somewhere and maybe like having um, 
having a snack break or something uh, or uh, and and these this tr- stream of women kind of came out of the caves they had been hiding in the caves um, for weeks uh, they were hiding in the caves because of airstrikes and I mean I'll never forget they just sort of from set from nowhere so they just kind of suddenly appeared from from these caves and they told us what you know their lives in in hiding was like um how long did you spend in, in Africa did you go to India from there I, I did. I, I briefly had a detour in um, in Iraq. I was in Baghdad just shortly after the invasion in the in the summer of two thousand and four, um, and then I so I spent about a total of two years in West Africa, and then the Delhi um, bureau opened up, and uh, I was I was delighted, um, you know, to to go there, and so I went 30 years after I left. I left in 1975, and I went back um, in 2005, exactly 30 years later. And I, I guess what stories did you set out to tell in, in 2005? Like, what was your goal going into going into India? Um, it was such a, uh, it was such a rapidly changing, dynamic country that there was no shortage of stories. Um, There's plenty of news stories, a lot of political change, um, plenty of conflict in that region. I mean, like I said, I didn't really set out to be a conflict reporter, but I kind of found myself then covering, um, you know, the, the, the civil war in Sri Lanka. Uh, and remember that when I when I first went, it was right after the tsunami. And so briefly in Sri Lanka, for example, there was a little moment of hope that um, the, the two sides, government and the Tamil Tigers, could come together in the rebuilding of the country. And um, that was that hope was short lived, as you, as you know, and, and the war really kicked up um, before it finally ended. Um, so. Yeah, there was no dearth of news stories in India, um, and I I was interested in, in sort of chronicling how fast the the country was changing. But it was um, what really struck me was how young this country had become. And um, you know, we we went over some of the numbers before, but when you're there, you can really, really feel it. Um, like how? Like like in in what way? Just just see kids everywhere or is there like, um, is, is you see immediate- young people, you see young people everywhere. I can sort of feel the energy of young people everywhere. Um, and also like suddenly I ended up there and people would call me auntie. Um, and auntie <laughs> is like what you call, you know, your middle-aged auntie. Oh, and no. you suddenly felt old. <laughs> I suddenly felt old. Um, so, and that is partly, I didn't write about that in my daily journalism so much, but I, uh, really began to explore that in the book. Um, And of course, India's youth bulge comes at a time when the rest of the world is is aging, particularly the rich world is aging very, very fast. And even China 
which had its demographic bulge um, a generation ago. China is also aging very fast. It doesn't help that its one-child policy means that uh, in many cases there is one working-age person who has to take care of, you know, two elderly adults. And so China's been sort of hurtling towards this demographic cliff now for many years and, as you know, finally a few months ago changed course and now has a two-child policy. Um, and and you mentioned another sort of demographic challenge of India, which is that through you know for for a number of reasons, the number of of young men are slowly, actually, kind of quickly outnumbering the number of of young women. Um, is that something that is sort of apparent in day to day life? I mean, you tell the aggregate numbers in your book, but um, is that something that like people are experiencing on like an individual level? Well, like, is it, it hard to find on- a mate? Yeah, it depends on where you look in the country. I mean, India is such a vast country. It's very different if you are talking about a southern state like Tamil Nadu or Kerala, where there isn't a gender imbalance in the population, or you're talking about a North Indian state like Haryana, where there is a very pronounced gender imbalance in the country. And one thing that has to be remembered is that uh, actually India's uh, sex imbalance, you know, this this phenomenon that you're referring to where there are more boys and men in the population than girls and women, this has gotten worse as Indians have prospered and can afford the ultrasound tests that show the sex of the fetus. Now, it is illegal to do sex determination tests. Uh, however, it's done quite often And um, uh, it has resulted in this really lopsided uh, 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 gender uh, imbalance, so much so that uh, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, the number of boys and there there are 17 million extra boys and men uh, in the age 10 to 24. That has to be somewhat destabilizing. I mean... It's uh, Yeah, that's a serious number. And it means that the marriage market can be very, very competitive. It is, um, it is harder. It's very hard for many young men in villages in Haryana to find a wife from nearby villages. And so there's been this phenomenon for the last few years of bringing brides from quite far away. I should also point out that Haryana, that state we're talking about with the really the sharpest gender imbalance, is also the state where you had a couple of weeks ago those uh, violent protests where young men from uh, a, a prosperous upper caste um, called the Jats, they were protesting on the streets, they were burning down cars, uh, they had blocked this uh, major artery uh, in a very prosperous state, an important state, all because they were having a hard time getting jobs. They were sons of farmers. They were having a hard time making a good living from the land anymore. They were, were not educated enough to find really good jobs. And they were demanding government jobs. And they were demanding that there be set-asides, quotas for them for government jobs. And I can't help but be struck uh, that this was happening in Haryana, the state that has really the, the sharpest imbalance, the sharpest sex imbalance, where it's really hard um, for a man without a job to find a wife. Um, so we just have a couple minutes left. I'd love to just ask you about the UN. Uh, how, how do you like covering the UN? 
there's never a dull moment covering the yuan mark. You know I know that. that. I know that. Yeah. I love um, it. Um, yeah. So, so I, it's, I mean, you know, you're obviously, you're, you're there in the bells. I assume, am I calling you in, in one of the, the, the offices at the UN? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I'm looking at the East River uh, and I'm sort of keeping an eye on what's happening on, in the Security Council. Yeah. And I mean, as you know, it's uh, covering the UN is not just about covering this place as an institution, which is important because all of our tax dollars, of course, um, pay for this place. But more so, I think this is the place where um, war and peace gets negotiated. So whether it's Yemen or Syria or North Korea, um, this is where the masters of the universe, you know, uh, are wrestling over what um, the state of the world is. Or at and, least their deputies. Or at least their, their envoys, as we, right, as we right, say. Right, right, envoys. Um, um, yeah. So big story. I mean, I guess like really like the big story from an institutional point of view this year is the uh, the race to replace Ban Ki Moon. Um, do you have any uh, any any picks? Like any predictions? Who you think might might make the final cut? Far be it from me to read the tea leaves of um, what the masters of the universe are, are going to decide at the end of this year. But I think it's remarkable what's happening, though, for the first time in a process that has been so closed, so opaque, where, you know, the rest of the world has had to kind of stand back and, 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 and watch for white smoke emerging from the closed doors of the Security Council, you have just a tiny little bit of opening. Now, I emphasis on tiny. So candidates are being invited to present their candidacies and to tell the General Assembly what their vision is. But, you know, really, by the end of the summer, you could hear another name, you know, that could come up. And that candidate could be taken seriously, even if she or he has not presented themselves um, to, to the General Assembly. Yeah. I love the so, fact that you can like go on the website of the president of the General Assembly and read the cover letter and resume of all the declared candidates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is theater to some extent, but it is one stab. It is one measure of how frustrated um, many countries are around here at the lack of transparency in these procedures. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to seeing like how the the format in which these like hearings take place, which it seems sort of seems like a little opaque to me. But apparently, for the first time, there, there's going to be some sort of like semi public or it has to be public. I mean, I would yeah, have to imagine it's going to be some, passed. Yeah, like, public yeah. hearings um, like, where the candidates will present themselves and they will be asked questions. But again. By the end of the year, you might have a what's sometimes referred to as a super candidate uh, who will just kind of emerge because the world powers, you know, yeah. favor him or her. And that candidate could emerge without having gone through this um, this process. A Helen Clark from the uh, from the ether uh, um, or a Michelle Bachelet from the ether. I think the chances are it's going to be a woman. Well, look, it, it very well could be. And I think that is, um, that's also a really interesting um, new development, you know, that there is such a, um, there is such a chorus um, and there is such a, such a movement at a time, frankly, when we are seeing across the world in very different kind of kinds of countries, we're seeing a really macho 
muscular kind of nationalist leader. And I'm talking not just about Mr. Putin, who rides on bareback, uh, or Mr. Trump, who um, talks about the size of his physical parts, um, but also Narendra Modi in India, who, if you'll recall, made it known that he had a 56-inch wide chest. Um, and, you know, you also have nationalist leaders uh, in Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, uh, in, in China and Japan uh, as well. So, you know, you're seeing uh, culturally, cultural nationalist leaders with authoritarian tendencies. They all happen to be men uh, in very different kinds of countries uh, around the world at a time when um, there is also alongside um, an agitation for a woman to lead the United Nations. So it'll be interesting. Uh, well, so many, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book and, and for introducing me to the concept and everyone to the concept of, of noonday children. I, I, I love that term. I love that concept. The book is great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Alrighty, thank you all for listening. Thank you to so many. And I got a link to her book up on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Uh, and finally, I suspect most of you probably already subscribe to my daily global humanitarian news clips service, Dawn's Digest. But if you don't, you should. Uh, it is a free, totally free global news clip service for people who are interested in global humanitarian news. Basically, the top news as curated by me and my partner, Tom Murphy, from around the world, mostly the developing world. Go to Dawn's Digest, D-A-W-N-S, digest.com. And I can also post a link to this on globaldispatchespodcast.com. You just drop your email in there. All right, we'll see you later. Bye.